All right, death, lesson number eight, mourning the dead. We could not write a curriculum on death without talking about how to properly mourn. And so I've written this in, from a couple different perspectives. Um, I don't know, we'll see. Mourning is biblical, godly, and necessary. That's where we want to jump into. And I had to write this section because we, coming from a word of faith background, I have heard it taught by very prominent faith leaders that sorrow and mourning is not faith. I even watched a, a, a funeral of a famous minister, and another famous minister preached um, the funeral, and he said, we're not going to mourn. There's no faith in mourning. And I watched that, and I thought, seriously? Have we gotten that extreme in some of our doctrines that we have negated other scriptures? So you'll have to forgive me if this first part is a rebuttal of that, because as a pastor, I've done so many funerals for us and for our loved ones, I have became very aware of the tangible anointing in funeral home after funeral home in our services to help us mourn the loss of loved ones. In fact, I remember the first funeral I did when I pastored, I had to repent because I had no understanding that there was an anointing to mourn, and it, it kind of corrected me because I was kind of tracking in that, that faith direction of uh, if you have enough faith there is no sorrow and that's there's no reality to that that's an expectation and a standard you can't put on people because our faith is based on the bible and the bible gives tremendous permission and even commandments to mourn and weep so let's look at this sadly some in faith circles have taught that faith in god doesn't mourn or experience sorrow Hopefully you've been well taught enough to think about a lot of scriptures where godly people were in fact in sorrow and God never rebuked them. If we're going to take the hard line of faith doctrine that says whatsoever is not of faith is sin, we know that from Romans, whatsoever is not of faith is sin, then anybody in the Bible that was sorrowing should have been rebuked for being in sin because according to our faith doctrine, not ours but theirs, Sorrow is not faith, therefore sorrow is sin. But I can't think of but one person who was rebuked for weeping. Samuel was rebuked, rebuked for weeping the death of Saul. And God said, how long, what meaneth this? How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing as I have rejected him? That's the only time I can think of in the Bible when someone is rebuked for sorrow. This is error and could not be further from sound biblical doctrine. Mourning is part of life and is often necessary to express faith. We'll see that in a moment. And true repentance. Mourning is simply the expression of sorrow or grief. And don't forget that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. And so the Holy Spirit also experiences sorrow. Anybody want to tell the Holy Spirit he's not in faith? <laughs> Amen. Because God has designed us to be capable of both sorrow and grief, mourning should not be foreign to us. So I want to encourage you, we're all going to experience loss at some point. That is one of the truths about death. It is the one thing, the second we are conceived, that is guaranteed to our life and every person alive. Death is the only thing that is guaranteed to every person on planet Earth from the moment of their conception. And if we know it's coming for all of us and it's coming for everyone we love, we ought to be able to prepare ourselves... For our death, prepare ourselves for the death of a loved one. And part of that includes preparing our heart to mourn, to weep, and to grieve. Because this is part of life, and there's a biblical way to mourn and move through it. I don't want to get ahead of myself. 
We mourn the death of loved ones because they are dear to our hearts and they will be missed. We mourn because our heart aches at their departure. And this is what the Bible also calls a broken heart. Broken heart has nothing to do with your spirit, man. They're two separate entities. But Isaiah 61 says Jesus was anointed or the gospel minister is anointed to heal the brokenhearted. And we all understand that. The Bible never condemns the brokenhearted. In fact, remember the prophecy of Jesus that a bruised reed would he not break and a smoking flax would he not quench? Both of those are Hebraic idioms or expressions that talk about people being broken in their heart. A bruised reed, he would not break that. That's someone who's been hurt. Smoking flax is someone who's lost their zeal and their fervor. He would not extinguish that. God has never condemned the brokenhearted. The Isaiah 61 prophecy of Jesus Christ, the first thing he's anointed to do with the preaching of the gospel is to heal the brokenhearted. Before he gets to any miracle, opening blind eyes, setting at liberty those that are bound, he heals the brokenhearted. This ought to show us how important mourning and then coming out of mourning is to God. The Bible never condemns the brokenhearted. However, God is not content to leave anyone brokenhearted. And so let me encourage you, should you or when you do mourn the loss of a loved one, there is a time to mourn, but you cannot stay there. You cannot stay in a state of perpetual mourning. That gets weird, and it's bizarre. It's okay to mourn in its proper season, but when the season changes, move on with it, just like... A heat wave in January is not normal. Snow in August is not normal. And you mourning when it should be a time of dancing is weird and not normal. Amen. There is a time to mourn, but then there will be a time to rejoice. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, 1 and 4. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. There's a time to weep in grief and lament and a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn, to lament and wail. And there's a time to dance. You know, the, see, the Bible offers permission to wail. And most of the Hebrew words for grief or mourning is wailing and even scratching at your face. That is a very Asiatic, Middle Eastern way of wailing. They still do it today. If you ever happen to catch news clips of terrorist attacks in the Middle East, you'll see the women in their uh, hajibs scratching at their faces. It's actually what the Hebrew word means. We have become so polished and, in a negative sense, puritanical in our wailing, we're even composed in that. And that's not biblical. There is supposed to be this expression. And we get uncomfortable when we go to funerals and people are laying over the casket wailing. That is biblical. To bottle it up and to act like a man or be a woman of faith, that's not what the Hebrew language permits. There is permission to wail, to scratch at one's face. I don't want you to do that because I think that is a little bridge too far as an American, but that's how they wailed. That's how they mourned. It's how they showed sorrow. And so we need to understand that this is what the Bible speaks of. There's a time to mourn and wail. There's a time to weep and grieve. But then there's a time to laugh and a time to dance. We've buried all of my family now in Louisiana, which is the family that was the richest, not financially, but we had the most connections. We had cousins, second cousins, third cousins, all on the farm. So we've buried all the patriarchs, and we've been through this cycle many times. And even in the, the viewing room of the funeral, uh, and even at the graveside, we're both crying and cracking jokes. 
laughing about the memories of Papa and Granny and Uncle Robert and Aunt Norma and all the silly, weird, goofy things we did as McMichaels in deep South Louisiana. And we, we were able to kind of roll both of them into one. And so I, I look back and think, well, we were pretty biblical. And we still mourn some of them, but we still also laugh about a lot of it as well. The Bible's very clear there is an appointed season for weeping and mourning. The Bible is clear. There is an appointed season. Now, a season isn't indefinitely. A season is a season. The Bible even commands mourning and lamentation at times. Not all mourning involves the death of a loved one. Now, let me back up and say again, just to kind of rebut um, the word of faith excess of no mourning. Mourning is not faith or biblical. Then explain to me the book of Lamentations. You want to tell me an entire book of prophecy written by Jeremiah, the wailing prophet, that mourning is not faith or biblical. And this comes back to my premise that all doctrine has to be pruned at some point. Otherwise, it continues to grow dangerous in the direction it was headed. So you forget we have a wailing prophet who wailed and lamented for the nation of Israel. You cannot tell me that there is no faith in wailing. There is no faith in mourning. Sure there is. Is there sin with other types? Sure. Just like there's some sin when money exchanges hands. Just like there's some sin when preaching exchanges goes forth. We have to make sure we understand that there's a biblical permission to wail and mourn in its faith. Not all mourning involves the death of a loved one. Some mourning is produced by sin. Some mourning is produced by shame. Some mourning is produced by defeat. There's a godly sorrow that worketh repentance not to be repented of. So there is some mourning that is you truly repenting, and that takes a tremendous amount of faith. Some mourning moves God, and some mourning is even commanded of God. James 5.1 says, Weep and mourn, you rich, for the sorrows that are about to come upon you. It's a biblical command to weep and mourn. 1 Samuel chapter 10 and then 16 and 17. She, this is talking about Hannah, was very upset as she prayed to the Lord and she was weeping uncontrollably. I guess she's not in faith. And she said to the priest Eli, don't consider your servant a wicked woman for until now I have spoken from my deep pain and anguish. And Eli replied, go in peace and may the God of Israel rebuke you for your faithless emotional display. <laughs> I'm so glad you guys can read. And may God give you what you want. And what happened? She conceived and had a boy. What did her faith do? It wept and mourned and moved God to give her what she didn't have. Here's a demonstration of mourning, moving God, it being a demonstration of faith. I just finished up a book on uh, history of revivals. I have a two-page chapter left, so I'm technically about to finish this book. I almost finished it yesterday. And this prayer lady said, she said, um, how did she say it? I wrote it down. She basically said, prayer that costs you nothing gets you nothing. And passive prayer accomplishes nothing. And I'm going to have to come back and teach us that because a lot of our praying is, Father, I believe I receive. Father, you know your word says. And there might be a permission for that when you're on an airplane and you don't want to freak people out. But when we have permission in our service to be loud, we ought to be moving some things and stirring some things. I don't want us to be passive and, in a sense, limp-wristed in our prayer life. There ought to be some emotion, the effectual, fervent prayer 
of righteous people avails much. So I, we see that here with Hannah. She was in deep anguish and mourning, and yet her mourning was crying out to God saying, give me a boy, give me a child. How is it I have no child? We don't know what she said because her mouth moved, but no words were heard. But the priest prophesied, said, the Lord grants you according to your faith. Haran's barren womb was a tremendous source of grief and mourning for her, but this deep anguish activated her faith, and she conceived a son, Samuel, the boy prophet. So Isaiah 61, verse 3, New English translation. This is the continuation of the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the meek. The Lord said he was also anointed to strengthen those who mourn in Zion by giving them a turban instead of ashes, oil symbolizing joy. Instead of mourning, a garment symbolizing praise. Instead of discouragement, they will be called oaks of righteousness, trees planted by the Lord to reveal his splendor. So here we see the gospel comes specifically for people in grief and sorrow and mourning. And without grief, sorrow and mourning, you don't get a turban. You don't get a garment of praise. You don't get the oil of glad gladness. These things cause God to move on your behalf. Now, I would also say on the flip side of that, if you are in a state of grief and mourning and sorrow, you should be prepared and willing and eager to put upon you this turban, to put upon you this robe of praise, this garment of praise, to put upon you this oil of gladness. And some folks get into the ditch of mourning and they just stay there. And in, in the South, we used to traditionally wear black. Uh, the widow would mourn and wear black for a season. Some folks spiritually, they wear black the rest of their life. I know a woman who lost her husband and 30 years later, she still talked about him like it was yesterday and it gets a little weird. There's a time to move on. Amen. This famous passage concerning the Lord's anointing to preach the gospel concludes by stating that Jesus is anointed to strengthen anyone mourning and discouraged. The gospel replaces mourning with a turban of confidence. I like that. Ashes with the joy of oil, oil of joy and discouragement with a garment of praise. All of this establishes the believer as a tree of righteousness. This is the purpose of the gospel. But it, it does, never calls mourning sin or faithless. He hears the cry of the brokenhearted. The cry. I honestly, if I can be honest, which I, I don't know if I'm ever dishonest preaching to you, or I don't know, I'm pretty, pretty straight. We have a lot of facades in the charismatic word of faith kingdom that we need to make sure are not still in us. Because we felt like if something bad was happening, maybe our faith was suspect. But the, it rains upon the just and the unjust. And it doesn't mean there was anything wrong with our faith. And so we got under some kind of weird pressure that we had to act like everything was okay when everything wasn't okay. And therefore, we even kept back the necessary spiritual help we needed because we acted like everything was okay. We could even be honest with God. I appreciate that about Hannah. She's called out by the high priest, and she's just as honest as can be. I'm not drunk, sir. I'm just really discouraged and anguished and sad. He, she kind of gets a little spunky with him. And yet in our circles, we kind of had to Pretend like, oh, how are you doing? Oh, I'm blessed, world coming. I'm a world overcomer, de devil butt kicking, you know, blessed. And we had this five-minute faith confession when we were dying on the inside. And dying on the inside, we could never be honest enough to say help where we could receive this turban and this robe and this oil. And so I think if nothing else, we've tried to teach you for years to be honest with God and to be honest with one another. I remember when 
the Philippines fell apart and my mind was swimming and so I came back to church here and I had learned through listening to Pastor Vaughn to be honest and not be so fake and uh, he came, it was right before service I was, I was just, my mind was swimming I was depressed, I was discouraged I thought how did I miss it so badly and how did I head towards the Philippines for so long and it not be God and I still don't know where I missed it so I was a, my mind was drunk and Pastor Vaughn walked down the aisle. He said, how are you doing this morning, Chris? I said, horrible. I don't even know which way is up. He laughed. He said, you'll be all right. And just slapped me on the shoulder and kept walking. <laughs> no hug. <laughs> he said, ah, you'll be all right. But at least I could hear him say, I'm not worried about you. Probably the bad thing would it be bottle it up and act like everything's okay. When he, he very well knew I was a mess mentally trying to figure out how I'd messed up so badly. Look at this next one. This next one's pretty indicting. I have to say, because we are word people. We've come from the word of faith revival. For all the word we claim to be, we didn't know the word like we thought we did because we never went back and pruned doctrine with better doctrine. Zechariah 12.10, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. So he's going to pour out of his spirit. This is the anointing. Can we agree on that interpretation? And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Now we're into messianic prophecy. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. So wait, God pours out of his Holy Spirit and it causes people to wail and mourn. So you're going to tell me wailing and mourning for the loss of a loved one is not faith when here it's a revival? You can see when you don't tether yourself to scriptures you don't study or study beyond what you've always studied, you can get off too far. It's what they call trajectory hermeneutics. You assume these three points line up and you can keep going this direction infinitely, but you forget that this doctrine also goes that direction just as far and it should tether you back. Remember my, my is the Icozy Dodeca doctrine over here? My big geodesic. What's that? Is behind the baptism. All right, one second. There it is. Boy, we have a whole cell of luggage back here. Oh, this thing has not been fixed. So this is my Icozy Dodeca doctrine. Actually, this is a geodesic shape called the Icozy Dodecahedron. So, so in the middle here is our doctrine. We'll, in this case, say morning. And you expand this thing. And if you're faith people, like we are, you can say, well, faith believes God. And so... That means I should never mourn because I just believe God. But the thing is, if you pull on this doctrinal string here, you've got these other verses and doctrines retaining you, so you can't go infinitely in this direction of, I believe God, and faith is confident, and faith is positive, and faith is joy, and, and whatsoever is not of faith is sin, and so therefore sorrow and weakness and mourning is not faith. But over here, we have Zechariah 12.10 that says, I will pour out of you my spirit of grace, and you'll mourn like one who lost their firstborn son. And so that's the problem if we're not careful. We don't study all the scriptures and realize that our doctrines are held in perfect balance like my little Icozy Dodeca doctrine here. Anyway, we hadn't used that in a while. I'm glad we keep these props available. You never know when they need to be used. <laughs> all right. 
Zechariah prophesied that when the spirit of grace and supplication was poured out upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, it caused them to mourn for Jesus like he was their own firstborn son. Amen. He was, here, was, here we see the anointing of God. The anointing of God can cause mourning and sorrow in time of death. It would not be a stretch to say there is an anointing to mourn and grieve. And if you've ever done a funeral, you recognize that flavor of the anointing of God. And that's, like I said, the first funeral I ever had to do as pastor. I had to repent because it never crossed my mind that one of the flavors of the anointing, one of the facets of the anointing was to help people grieve. Because if the anointing is here to help us live life, part of life is mourning the loss of a loved one. What else does this, we talk about the spirit of comfort. What is the spirit of comfort that God who, com- the God of all comfort, comfort us, comforteth you with the comfort wherewith we are comforted. I think that's 2 Corinthians chapter 1. What does that anointing look like? What well, manifests when people hurt? The anointing doesn't manifest when people are in sin necessarily. Well, grace abounds, but but here we have the anointing present to help people grieve and mourn. So I'm really just kind of rebutting the word of faith error and then burying it with a lot more doctrine because, because it's easy. <laughs> and why wouldn't you? Because I don't ever want us to get into the same ditch where we would say something so foolish as to say, I don't have to mourn. Uh, yeah, it's part of life. I had something tragic happen to me and... Uh, Years ago, probably, I don't know. And I, I knew in that season, if I started crying, I was afraid I wouldn't stop. So a friend of mine said, let me give you a hug. And I said, please don't hug me because I'm afraid if you hug me, I may start crying and I don't know if I'll stop. And it probably, I, so I never cried. It probably took me 10 years to come back and get over that. And if I'd have dealt with it in that season, that's faith deal with it and move on. Instead, this thing is like a canker that gnaws up my soul because I was too faith-filled to even mourn now. And I was a younger, naive man then, but uh, there's nothing wrong with crying. I think that's bad Southern tradition too. Men don't cry. Well, let me come punch you in the face. Let's see if we can make you cry a little bit. I'm going to prove doctrine by roughing you up a little bit. All right. James 4 and 9, New Living Translation. Let there be tears for what you have done. There's a biblical command. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter, gloom instead of joy. Here's a New Testament command for sorrow and mourning. To obey God, you have to have faith. The New Testament declares tears, sorrow, deep grief, sorrow, and gloom are exactly what is called for when you realize how sinful your behavior has been and it takes faith to repent and sometimes that faith manifests as mourning. Let's keep moving here because we want to get into some other critical stuff. Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are they that never mourn because they have so much faith. <laughs> How did faith miss the Beatitudes? <laughs> How did faith miss the Beatitudes? I don't know. Now, we could biblically say it does take faith to come back out of sorrow. And it does take faith to come out of mourning when you want to lay in bed and hurt after six months. It does take faith to shake yourself and say, all right, that's enough. My loved one has crossed over. There's nothing else I can do. Now I must live. Just like God told Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now arise. There comes a time when God says, now arise. That takes faith. 
It takes faith to overcome this. But here, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, I like having the comfort of God. I think we get into a place where we're afraid to hurt because if we're afraid to hurt, it might hurt. Therefore, we go through life numb. And when you go through life numb, you're not sensitive to anything. But it's all a defense mechanism. There is a time. And I, I've been to enough funerals as a guest to see people pervert them all in the name of faith and try to have a worship service or a praise service when the people have come and most of them hurt and they need to be comforted. So explain to me how forcing a funeral to be a praise service doesn't violate this verse because it does violate this verse. If I'm a minister and we have a massive funeral, somebody died, and half the congregation wants to praise and dance and the other half wants to mourn, I have to help those that mourn first because that's the smoking flax it must be paid attention to. That's the bruised reed. If I discredit them or distinguish or extinguish them, suppress them that we might have a faith service, I've done a disservice to half the body of Christ. And we that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and give a season to mourn. And anyway, I could go on and on about this because I can look at it and think, this is such fallacy. And you held back the Spirit of God from comforting people who needed it. Jesus Christ declared in the Beatitudes that there is a blessing in time of mourning because God himself will comfort them. God comforts the mourner. Why would you keep God from touching his children? It's like my children are hurting and you won't let me go pick them up. How is that love? How is that biblical? My children have fallen and hurt themselves or my little girls are in their bed at night and they're terrified of something, maybe a storm or a shadow scared them and you won't let me go in there and hold them? Think about what this does when we don't let the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God, come in and comfort his child. Amen. All right, I beat that dead horse drug. It got nothing but a stick of leather in my hand. People of faith mourn. No, no, we're going to take this stick of leather and chew on it till there's nothing left. People of faith mourn. Abraham is the first person the Bible records mourning at the loss of a loved one. The father of our faith mourned the death of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kirjath Arba. The same as Hebron in the land of Canaan. And Abram came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. The father of our faith was not rebuked. Israel mourned for Aaron for 30 days when he passed away. David mourned the death of Saul and his sons. Bathsheba mourned for her husband Uriah. David mourned the death of Absalom. The angel prophesied that Mary would mourn the loss of her son. He describes sorrow as a sword piercing your own soul. The angel said that, and he didn't say, when it happens, repent because you won't be in faith. <laughs> All right, moving on. We're done with the dead strap of leather. Things to remember in times of loss because we're talking about mourning. And I said all the previous stuff because I want you to feel free to weep, wail, mourn. We even get the word catharsis from the Greek word catharsis. And catharsis means to stop bleeding. So when something is cathartic, it stops the bleeding of your soul. And wailing is designed by God to do that. To stop the bleeding of your soul. Allow it to heal and then go on. So here are things to remember in times of loss. 
Death is one of the few events all men share in common. It is an unstoppable event coming for us and everyone we love. We will all be touched by death. Some of us will be touched by death this year. Uh, probably every one of us will be touched by death in the next five years, and that's okay. Just make sure it's not you finishing your race prematurely. It's you running your race to the end. You have to determine, it may touch me, but it's not touching me. Let it take grandma and grandpa because it's their time and they finish their race. But the point is, it's going to touch every one of us. It should then come as no surprise that the Bible teaches many things concerning death. I think we've proven that with eight or nine lessons now on the subject. All people and cultures mourn differently. Some people mourn for weeks and months. Others mourn for years, which I do not recommend. As with all things in life, grief is bordered by two ditches. On one side of grief is the ditch called refusing to mourn. On the other side of grief is the ditch of inability to move on. In between the ditches, everyone is different. And a pastor helps people move along. A pastor helps people uh, mourn or dry up the mourning. I have done both. I have told, I've gone and encouraged folks. In fact, I just encouraged somebody this morning who's mourning the loss of a loved one. I said, you may need to resolve this and wrap this up. Somebody else I just checked on recently and I said, did you get to mourn this loss? Because if you haven't, you still need to. You need, there needs to come a gusher. And they said, I think I've been able to. Maybe not a gusher, but maybe a little bit here and a little bit there. I've, I've had to, as a pastor, help people do both to keep themselves healthy in their soul. Here are some things to keep in mind. Psalm 116, 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. These are things to encourage yourself now in time of loss. Remember that our loss is God's gain. Now, I'm going to assume they went to heaven. If they went to hell, there's nothing we can do except make sure we tell as many people about Jesus and tell our loved ones. And Probably one of the best ways to get out of those family reunions you don't like is to evangelize every one of those family members before you have to go to that family reunion, and they will uninvite you themselves. But at least you have preached the gospel. Really, it's killing three birds with one stone. Rewards in heaven, evangelize the pagan family member, and get out of the miserable family reunion. That's like a threefold blessing from God. But if your loved one has passed away, remember that the sight of the Lord, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, not the pagan. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But in the death of the righteous, it's precious to him. Our loved one's departure is heaven's homecoming. Their death was precious or is precious to God because he finally gets to be with his child face to face again. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. We are permitted to grieve, but not as the hopeless. We mourn, but not like those who have no hope. Here the hope is the hope of the resurrection. That's clue from, um, evident from contextual clues. We mourn, but not as those who have no hope. Our hope is that we will see our loved one again in the resurrection, and this should encourage us in our time of grief. And for many of you who we have buried your loved ones, you've been able to say as much that I'm glad they're in heaven. I'll see them again one day. I miss them. I miss them at holidays. But you know what? I wouldn't bring them back. They wouldn't come back if I could bring them back. So thank God they were born again. I appreciate the memories I had, and we just move on. Amen. 
We are free to mourn, but not as those who have no hope. Our hope is the coming resurrection. Dwight Moody said, As I go into a cemetery, I like to think of the time when the dead shall rise from their graves. Thank God our friends are not buried. They are only sown. I like that perspective. Their bodies have been sown. It's seed. You don't go to the field and mourn the corn kernel you put in the ground. You wait for the corn to come up and you start thinking about the 4th of July barbecue when you get to eat corn on the cob. You sow it in hope. You sow it in anticipation. You bury that loved one as seed in the ground that one day they'll spring up a resurrected body better than what they were sown. Philippians 1.23, For I am a, in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. It is perfectly biblical to desire to depart when you've come to the end of your race. Now, if you desire to depart a little earlier than that, it might be suicidal thoughts or depression or laziness. So you have to make sure your desire to depart is in the proper time because even the right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. I look forward to heaven, but I don't want it anytime soon. But Paul said, I want to depart and be with Christ because that's far better. So something we can remember in time of loss is that if they have departed, they're with Christ, which is far better than being with you. And we don't feel that way in the moment, but that's what Paul said. To depart, he said, to leave you is far better. To be with Christ is far better. He said, nevertheless, I shall remain for your benefit. That's often what we'd like. And many doctors have said, we've seen this over and over again, but they have told their family, stop praying. You are keeping them alive especially with grandma, grandpa, someone on life support, they'll say, it's your presence in this room that is keeping them from passing away. And I've seen that walked out many times since I've pastored. And so we have to help the family or go in there and say, all right, you tell grandma, you tell grandpa, you tell your husband on the ventilator, it's okay if they go on. It's okay to pass away. You, they have your permission to go ahead and go home. In fact, we just did this about two months ago with someone. In another state, the family called me. They said, we don't understand. She's still with us. She shouldn't still be with us. I said, put me on the phone. She's in a coma <laughs> or unconscious, maybe not a coma. So I said, hey, this is Pastor Chris. I said, I want you to know it's okay to go home. It's okay to pass away. You have my permission. Your family wants you to go. You just go ahead and pass away. And she passed away, I think, in a week or two just from a phone call. She, I'm sure her heart was, I need somebody of spiritual authority to tell me it's okay. Because she just kept hanging on. To be with Christ is far better. And sometimes we feel guilty for hanging on or uh, we feel guilty for clinging to them. But let them go on because it is far better. Amen. All right. If our departed uh, loved one was a believer, they have departed to be with Christ, which is far better. Ultimately, death is far better if you're born again. If you're not born again, death is the worst thing that could happen in this lifetime for you because then you just go to hell and there's no redemption. Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Remember that your days are number two. Ecclesiastes says it is better to go into a funeral than into a party. That's the modern translation. Better to go into the house of mourning than to the house of mirth because that is the end of all men. It is good to go to funerals. 
It is good to go to funerals because it puts into perspective your mortality and you realize this thing is coming for you too. And it makes you walk a little faster for Jesus. Makes you think about your loved ones a little bit closer. Makes you think about who I should write on that Christmas card. Do you know Jesus? Who, who do I need to call up and talk to that cousin I haven't seen in six years? It's better. That's what Ecclesiastes says. It's better to go to a funeral than a party because it also teaches us to number our days. Like we've said, I think, almost every class so far, you're all dying. Just not today. But today you're one day closer to eternity than you were yesterday, and you're one day less in your, your ability to do something. Your time frame is shortened. So in time of mourning, remember that your days are numbered and apply your heart to wisdom. What I think I've shared this. Our local funeral home directors, who we get to know because we're doing funerals in all these different homes, and they, they know the churches because that's who they work with, the one guy over here off of Jackson, he said, I asked him how the business was going. He said, we are watching people come to funerals less and less. He said, it seems like nobody wants to look at their mortality anymore. He said, we're getting requests for shorter and shorter funerals. He said, people are inconvenienced by the death of their loved one and they just don't want to deal with it. That is a humanistic mindset concerning scripture. Because the Bible teaches us to number our days. The Bible teaches us to go into the house of mourning. Yeah. The Bible teaches us to honor the dead, not worship them, not even talk to them, but honor them. And we are totally eliminating all of that because we don't want to face the reality of it. That is a lack of faith. Faith can look at death and say, you're coming for me, but I have defeated you in Christ. This body may die one day, but it's going to die in health when I'm finished my race and I've prophesied to my loved ones. And then I'm going to release my Holy Ghost. Then, body, you'll have permission to die. And until then, I don't fear any funeral home. I don't fear any dead body. I don't fear any loved one passing away early because we have mastered death. You can tell you're in faith when you can stare it down, talk about it, breathe it in, breathe it out, and it doesn't move you. But if you're terrified of death, there's no faith in that. But this funeral home director, these guys are experts at death. They're grace to comfort the community. He said, nobody wants to look at it anymore, but it's coming for us. Now, that's a wise word from a man who, a Christian man, his job, he's graced by God to help families. All right, let's keep going. We're almost out of time. Remember that your days are number two. Death events are good for reminding us of our mortality. The best way to honor the memory of your loved one is to live for Jesus like never before. I may get choked up here. My papa passed away in 2004. He asked me to come see him. He was on his deathbed, though there was nothing wrong with him. He asked me if it was okay to die. I've told most of you this story before. So I met with him in private right Memorial Day or the weekend of Memorial Day 2004. And he said, is it okay to go home to heaven? I said, absolutely. And uh, I said, you've lived a long life. Two of your grandsons are preachers. He said, that's my favorite part. That's what I'm most proud of, he said. He said, you're a World War II vet. You did all this great stuff. So I gave him permission to die, which is what he needed. And then four days later, he told his, my grandmother, Granny, he said, I'm just going to go take, I'm going to fall asleep. You go get you some lunch. I'm just going to fall asleep. And he did, and he just went to heaven. And so, but one of the things he, he told me, he said, uh, son, I want you to keep serving God. Now, this was a Methodist man, and I wasn't full-time ministry there. And I was a youth leader. I was about to go to Bible school at Lester Summerall's. But he said, I want you, I want you to never stop serving God. Promise me you'll do that. I said, yes, sir, I'll, I'll do that. And so uh, at the viewing, so he dies four days later. So we're back in Tennessee. We have to turn around and go all the way back to Louisiana where we just were for his funeral. I thought, great, Papaw. That's when I learned death is never convenient for anybody <laughs> except the dead. 
And that's if they wanted to die. Other than that, we're like, well, this was totally unexpected. Why, what, what, what? <laughs> so we're down there, and I, 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 I did my grieving at the family viewing, and there's Papa, he opened casket, and I, I was weeping pretty bitterly, and my last words to him before they shut the casket, I said, Papa, I promise you, I'll never stop serving God. That was catharsis for me because I had promised him that. But I'm not talking to the dead, but it's, it's this thing. I'm going to live for you, for the Lord Jesus to make you proud, Papa. I think we've all got that kind of sentiment at some point. But I just wrote this. The best way to honor the memory of your loved one is to live for Jesus like never before. Live for Jesus like they didn't get to. No doubt I'm born again because my grandfather got saved after World War II raised his family in the Methodist church faithfully. My dad grew up with a Christian faith, married a Baptist preacher's daughter, my mama, and they raised me in church without any compromise, without any question, without any excuse. We were in the house of God every Sunday, every Wednesday, every vacation Bible school, every church camp outing. That was put into my dad from my grandfather. And how do I honor my grandfather in death but to live for God on, upon his foundation? and to do something for Christ that he never understood could be done. If I don't, then I just flush the whole thing down the toilet and it was all for naught, which is how a lot of kids do live. Anyway, 2 Kings 23, King Josiah asked, what is this grave marker I see? The men from the city replied, it is the grave of the prophet who came from Judah and foretold these very things you have done to the altar of Bethel. The king said, leave it alone. No one must touch his bones. So they left his bones undisturbed as well as the bones of the Israelite prophet buried beside him. Keep in mind, it is proper to honor the grave of your loved one. We don't do that much anymore. This king commanded them, don't touch his grave. He was in the process of destroying all the graves of the false prophets. So he comes to this grave and it's, an un, it's a grave of the unnamed prophet Whose grave is this? This is the prophet that the Bible doesn't record his name. He prophesied that you would come along one day, hundreds of years ago, and do exactly what you've done. Then don't touch it. Honor this man's grave. And everybody close to him, honor their graves too. Think about Arlington Cemetery. You ever been to Arlington Cemetery? It is hallowed ground. You ever been to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier? You, will, you don't even have to be military. There's a hallowed and a sacredness there as they honor the dead. They don't worship them. They honor the dead. That's part of the value of life is you remember what they accomplished. I've been privileged to go to the, uh, actually the changing of the guard twice at uh, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. And they've, they've walked that path so much in the limestone. There's actually a groove in it where they pace back and forth. They've walked the limestone uh, in 50 or 60 years, however old it is. It is proper to honor the grave of your loved one, to keep it trimmed back to keep flowers there if you want to. It's proper to honor that, to see where a sacred thing occurred, where someone was sown into the ground. Uh, every culture is different, but it is proper to keep the weeds off of the grave and occasionally place flowers there as a memorial. This is a demonstration of honor. This is not worship. But if we're not careful, we get into communication with the dead, and it takes place here in the Upper Cumberland. I've seen some of our church family tiptoe into it inadvertently. Deuteronomy 18, there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. 
For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. Let me just read for time's sake. Be careful that in your time of grief you continue to direct all of your prayer toward Jesus Christ and not the dearly departed. And it's a very slippery gear there where you go from maybe like I did with Papaw. Papaw, I'm going to miss you, sir, but I promise you I will never stop serving Jesus. I love you, Papaw. That's me saying a word. If I go any more than that, Who's to say I don't get a familiar spirit communicating back to me? Christians often cross over into the communication with the dead. Be cautious the attitude of your heart and the manner of your prayers if and when you visit cemeteries to grieve or pay respect. Strangely enough, some believers learn how to pray only after a loved one dies. The problem is they aren't praying to God and familiar spirits are always looking to gain entrance. I've heard so many weird stories of Christians, usually lukewarm baby Christians. A loved one dies and they start having supernatural encounters that they interpret as confirmation that their loved one is in heaven. And this is nothing but familiar spirits and spiritism. And they they learn how to talk. They learn how to sit down and have a one-on-one conversation with an unseen entity someone they used to talk to a lot, except they're directing their conversation to a dead loved one and not God. I really, it shocks me how many Christians get better at prayer after the death of a loved one than before, but they're not praying to God. The entity they're directing their conversation towards is is the memory of a loved one because we know that when you die, you're in heaven and you're not coming back and you're not answering prayers. We don't pray to the saints and we don't pray to loved ones. You're awfully quiet on this. I'm not really sure why. I hope none of you talk to your dead loved ones because you will draw up a demon. (laughs) And it takes place in Cookville. There's a reason weird people go to cemeteries because spirits hang out in the cemeteries looking for someone who turns the radio station in their soul on the right station. And they begin to communicate with the dead, which we know is not possible. It becomes a demon. So keep this in mind in your state of grief that you're not saying, Grandma, I miss you so much, six months later. I just want you to see this is what the Lord, he calls communication with the dead abominable to him. He also calls bestiality abominable to him. He calls homosexuality abominable to him. He calls cross-dressing abominable to him. And you talking to Grandma or Daddy or even your dead husband or wife is abominable to him. I have to kind of push on that because you guys got real quiet and kind of hunkered down into some upper Cumberland religion or something. We do have demon worshipers in this region. You need to understand that. And there's plenty of demon power. You guys have seen us cast demons out in this church before. And one of the ways you can get one is to communicate with your dead granny. Amen. Amen. All right, let's move on. Last verse, 2 Corinthians 1, 3, 4. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our tribulations that we may be able to comfort them which are in every trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. My final point, God, remember God is the great comforter. He gives power to the weary and restores our soul. There's a time to mourn, but then there's a time to rejoice, laugh, dance, and continue on with life. You don't get to quit your life simply because someone you love finishes theirs or finish theirs, there's more life to live. 
Last story. When I was in college, I went on a mission trip. One of the young ladies on the mission trip was a high school girl named Karen. Karen was about three years younger than me. I was 19. She was 16. Wonderful Baptist girl, loved Jesus, beautiful girl, volleyball player, all-around sports athlete. She was killed that fall semester. We went to Poland in June. She was killed in October, I think, in a car accident. T-boned, obliterated her, coming out of volleyball practice. She was one of these girls that was a friend to everybody. And so at her funeral at my parents' church, they had hundreds of people there. Forty folks came to Christ at her funeral. She had the gothics there, the jocks, the metalheads. She was a friend to everybody. Forty people got born again at her funeral. What a testimony. Beautiful 16-year-old girl. They actually made a prayer garden at the high school in her name. It's still there to this day to honor this girl. It's a high school I would have gone to if we didn't move to Seattle. And so the problem, though, she had a little brother, and then she had, obviously, a mom and a dad. But her mom grieved and grieved and grieved and grieved and grieved and anytime you ask her mom, how are you doing? I just miss Karen. I just want to go be with her. I just miss Karen. I just want to go be with her. And people, even the Baptists, who aren't faith people like we are, they picked up. You can't do this. They began to encourage her. Well, don't forget about your husband or your son. Hey, there's more to live. We miss Karen too. She's in heaven though. Look at how many came to Christ at her death. You, you got to move on. And she would not. She settled down into this funk. She very quickly developed cancer of the blood vessel lining and was dead in a year. Neglected her husband, made him a widow in his 40s, a widower, neglected her baby boy because she could not move on. So that's a very profound thought that you could let the enemy kill two birds with one stone if you don't mourn properly and then move on properly. So let me leave you with that. There's a time to mourn and then there's a time to receive comfort for the faint, and then there's a time to go on and encourage others. And God will help you do all of it. Amen.